trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to The Brian Hyde Show. Glad you could join us today as uh, there is just so much to cover once again. No way we could possibly fit it all into two hours. Now, here's the good news. I have some very nice show notes, which you can find at lovingliberty.net. I would encourage you to check out the articles that I share with you. Follow the links. You'll often find links within links. And if you're serious about really understanding the world around us as it is, this is a good way to do it. I know it involves doing your own homework. Thinking can be hard work, but you know what? You, you really don't want me spoon feeding. This is what you're supposed to believe, right? Okay. So let's begin with a question. And this is the question. Is violent conflict inevitable? There are those who believe that it is. Um, and, you know, looking around, <laughs> man, you, you got to wonder because there's some really, truly crazy stuff going on. But... I don't think that, uh, that becoming like the Balkans were 25 years ago is necessarily written in stone for us. I mean, it, it looks pretty crazy. And, and the more I watch the different protests going on, I mean, come on, they were pouring red street, red blood all over the streets of Salt Lake City on Saturday. Uh, you know, I, I saw a very iconic bit of video and a photo come out of St. Louis over the weekend when Black Lives Matter marched into a uh, private street, a private neighborhood, a gated community, and a couple came out of their mansion. I mean, it's a legit mansion with an AR-15 and a handgun and motioned these guys and ordered them, move along, keep moving. And of course, you know, the, the BLM protesters, oh, well, this is a peaceful protest. And well, folks, uh, I, folks have eyes to see and folks have been catching on that these so-called peaceful protests have a way of getting out of hand very quickly. And, you know, I'm not trying to, to ascribe, you know, really evil intentions. I'm telling you, it's plain that there are folks who have a lot of anger and a lot of time on their hands and are just looking for an outlet, somewhere to send it. And that is a very dangerous combination because uh, um, I, I agree with the article I shared last week. And um, I don't remember who the author was. Lou Rockwell shared it. It was an email from a friend of his saying, pay attention because the... The, the fighting that, that some people seem to want to, to foment, the conflict and, and the, the actual violence between groups is, is being sponsored by or promoted by or encouraged by those who sit in positions of power right now. We'll call it the establishment. I don't know. It might be too conspiratorial for some, but it makes sense. It leaves them safe to continue doing what they've been doing, pulling the strings and levers of power, you know, as they have. While the rest of us tear one another apart and don't do anything to upset the elites hold on power. Pretty crafty stuff. But what if there was a solution for everybody, left, right, and center? I know that's a question that some people think, well, that sounds pretty utopian, but uh, I'm, I'm convinced elections alone are not going to solve the problem ahead of us. In fact, I think the next election could actually be a catalyst for real bloodshed, a la 1860. But I also am thinking that uh, there are some solutions so simple 
that we might be tempted to overlook them. And I'm going to play the audio for you from a video titled A Solution for Everyone, Left, Right, and Center. The answer, this video tells us, is decentralization. Give a listen, see what you think. Why are we fighting each other, left against right, in a battle to dictate how the other should live? We've been pitted against each other by the political, financial, and media elites that profit from our conflict. We don't need to be fighting while we agree on the corruption and abuse that plagues our people. Our preferences differ in our lifestyles, social policy, and how we want to organize our communities, but we agree on common solutions. Let us come together where we agree and give each other space where we are different let us celebrate our diversity by allowing separation rather than fighting against each other for the seat of power. Let us stand together as one people and many people. Let us reflect on the original vision of our country, which honored the differences between the 13 small colonies, which would blossom into 50 glorious states. We live in an age where we no longer need to compromise with one another on our differences, be they intellectual, emotional, moral, social, or political, differences that only continue to diverge. We have demonstrated our preferences by the big sort, already seeking out the communities which we desire. Standing together, we still benefit from the shared military, trade, economic, and insurance benefits of our size and scale but we need not be limited in the satisfaction of our social, political, and aesthetic preferences. The solution is simple for the people, though rather painful for the politicians, bankers, and media who stand in our way. The solution, restore the intent of the Constitution, restore the American project, itself born from the British project, and itself born of 1100 years of the continental European project. Devolve the federal government to the states. Devolve the states into additional states as suits the local demand. Decentralize. What would this vision for America look like? No more electoral college, no House of Representatives, and no presidency. The Senate remains but consists of the governors of the several states. The powers of the federal government are severely constrained. What remains is the military for defense, the court to resolve disputes, and the treasury for finance and insurance. States, whether as large as a rural landscape or as small as a bustling city, are organized around common interests. Each state is able to customize their laws to their demands, but with no influence outside their territory. And while each pursues their own social preferences, each also bears their own social costs. People will continue to move according to their preferences. Some will seek out the excitement of the city, while others will leave cities looking for quieter communities to settle for the long term. Most likely, this leads to a small number of dense city-states dedicated to novelty, self-expression, and openness, and a number of larger, sparsely populated territorial states dedicated to families, trust, and tradition. The costs of each are contained, 
the power of the federal government is returned to we the people. No more struggle for the power to rule over each other. De-escalate. Reduce tensions by restoring freedom of association and returning power to the local level. Demonopolize. Remove the role of the federal government to impose its will on states and local communities, instead creating a wide market of different groups for people to choose from. Depoliticize. End judicial activism, arbitrary legislation, and the political battle of rallying a majority to defeat your opponents. Depropagandize. Bring an end to the manufacture of pseudoscience, lies, fake news, and propaganda which pollute our informational ecosystem. Definancialize. End the current financial and banking system which parasitically extracts wealth, thus freeing up capital for the average American to more easily buy a home, start a business, or contribute productively to society. This is revolutionary, but this is possible. We have the moral authority. We have the solutions. Let's stand together to stand separately to let a thousand communities bloom. So there it is. I know. What, what a revolutionary idea. Apparently uh, in Richmond, Virginia, this uh, July 4th, so this coming Saturday, uh, they uh, are holding a big gathering, the New American Reformation. Now, I got to tell you, I there, there's a part here that, that causes hesitation for me, and that is the idea of, so uh, essentially we scrap the U.S. Constitution. The problem I have is uh, I was raised to believe, and I do believe, that uh, there was divine purpose in the crafting of that document. I believe that, uh, I believe, I'll just put my cards on the table, I believe God raised up men for the purpose of creating that Constitution. Now, I'm going to temper that with the idea that but was that Constitution supposed to be the end in and of itself? Or was it the starting point for something even better? In other words, could we improve upon it? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm just asking it to put it out there, and, and perhaps you have some thoughts on it as well. But at this point, I think starting with decentralization would be a wonderful step in the right direction and would do a lot to uh, help de-escalate the growing tensions because I'm not convinced the two sides that are forming right now, the two worlds, if you will, are going to be able to coexist without uh, some immense clash in the near future. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to the Brian Hyde Show. So glad you could join me. I'm going to build a little bit on what we touched on in the first segment of the show, and that is what what kind of solution could there be that would work for everybody, left, right, and center, that could help us avoid what appears to be a collision course with, with real balkanization and the associated violence like we have seen, you know, throughout, uh, uh, well, the, the 20th century, for instance, as well as other times, but... I, we, we are so divided right now, and I look around, and, and like so many people, I, I am absolutely infuriated when I see the wanton violence, the destruction of private property, the, the bullying, the manipulation of language, the destruction of history, 
all in the name of so-called social justice. It's it's very clear that, uh, you know, peaceful coexistence does not appear to be on the table for those who espouse this uh, ideology. And I want to stand for those things that need to be stood up for. And, and I want to uh, preserve those things that are worth preserving. But there's a terrific article from Gary M. Gallus, a powerful reminder from Leonard E. Reed, who founded the, Econ- the Foundation for Economic Education, a reminder why means matter more than ends. Reed was, was such an incredible principled voice for the, the principles and practices of liberty. And he also was very clear in sounding a warning that if you use immoral means to advance your cause, it's going to result in moral decline. Why bring this up? Well, because I'm, I'm hearing rumbles, and, and frankly, sometimes I feel that, uh, that anger inside myself that just says, you know what, maybe it would be time to just take the gloves off and just, uh, you know, go meet these idiots head on in the street and, and have it out. I know that's that's not that's not helpful. It's not uh, the way that uh, that I would want to approach such things. But um, I, I think the the anger and the fear that we're being fed every day is trying to foment exactly that kind of a reaction. So here is a reminder about why means and ends matter. Gary Gallus says history has produced an almost endless supply of those who would remake society into the utopia they imagine. But in trying to mold people into what they must be to match dictators' mental images, they forget that the ends actually achieved will not match their imaginations and that the means which they use are unjust, as well as undermining individuals' potential. Now, he says Leonard Reed was an astute observer of such coercive political panaceas. He frequently started his rebuttals by citing Ralph Waldo Emerson, cause and effect, means and ends, seed and fruit cannot be severed for the effect already blooms in the cause the end pre-exists in the means the fruit in the seed now gary gallus says reflecting emerson reed argued that the ends that will actually be produced need not match those intended the ends that will be achieved will actually be implied by the means used only moral means can achieve moral advances i mean that makes sense right Conversely, immoral means will achieve, in quotation marks, moral decline. He made that argument most clearly in The Bloom Pre-Exists in the Seed, in his 1969 book, Let Freedom Reign. And Gary Gallus says it merits reconsideration. Quote, many people expect to achieve lofty goals without any thought of the means they use. But a hard look at means and ends is appropriate. Leonard Reed wrote, ends, goals, and aims are but the hope for things to come. They are not a part of the reality from which may be safely taken the standards for right conduct. They are no more to be trusted as benchmarks than are daydreams or flights of fancy. Many of the most monstrous deeds in human history have been perpetrated in the name of doing good in pursuit of some noble goal. They illustrate the fallacy that the end justifies the means. He says, examine carefully the means employed, judging them in terms of right and wrong, and the end will take care of itself. So for an individualist, valued above all else is each distinctive individual human being. And Leonard Reed says, if we would find the distinction between collectivism and individualism, examine the actions or means that are implicit in achieving the goals. 
He says implicit in the collectivist approach is the masterminding of the people who make up society. The control of the individual's life is from without. The collectivist view holds that the individual does not fit himself into place, but instead is assigned that niche or role which the political priests believe will best serve whatever societal pattern they have formulated. Implicit is that men exist who are competent to form the ways and shape the lives of human beings by the millions, that there are those who not only can rightly decide what is best for all of us, but who can prescribe the details as to how the best that is in us can be realized. Any conscientious collectivist, if he could, properly evaluate the authoritarian means his system of thought demands, would likely defect. However lofty the goals, says Leonard Reed, if the means be depraved, the result must reflect that depravity. Therefore, the eventual outcome of the collectivist way of life may be accurately predicted by anyone who understands the means which must be employed. Now, I'm going to pause there for just a moment and just ask you, if you have been looking at the uh, uh, Chaz or CHOP or whatever it is, the, uh, uh, the occupied zone in Seattle, does this not play out just as Leonard Reed described? If the means by which that uh, CHOP or Chaz was put together are depraved, the result is going to reflect that depravity. And it has thievery, rape, violence. And of course, uh, you know, consternation. Well, you know, we called the ambulance and the fire department. They were supposed to come and help us. But, you know, but we turned our backs on, you know, that system and said, we'll be autonomous and we want nothing from you. You can't have it both ways, guys. You want a little uh, section of Seattle run by a warlord? You got it. How's it working out for you? Back to Leonard E. Reed. So he's told you about collectivism's means. Now let's talk about individualism's means. Leonard Reed says, quote, When the individual is the ultimate goal, the means implicit in achieving such a goal must be radically different. Either I will concentrate on me and my welfare or on others and their welfare, mind my own business or mind other people's business. In view of the obstacles to the relatively simple task of self-realization, reflect on the utter absurdity of undertaking to manage the lives of millions. He says each individual best promotes his own self-interest by peaceful social cooperation as in the free market. Indeed, the more I make of myself, the more are others served by my existence. The way to assume social responsibility is for the individual to rise as far as possible. Next, he talks about private ownership and voluntary means and beneficial ends. Leonard Reed says the incentive of private ownership is far more powerful than the sentimental thrust of laboring for the good of all. If we concede that a man has a right to his life, it follows that he has a right to sustain life, the sustenance being the fruits of one's own labor. Private ownership is sacred as life itself. Private ownership lies at the very root of individual liberty. Without it, there can be no freedom. With it, freedom is secure. For private ownership presupposes free choice in disposition, that is, freedom to exchange. It's senseless to talk about freedom if the right of private ownership be denied. Can we pronounce a moral judgment on these means implicit in the individualist goal or individualistic goal? These means serve as a powerful thrust toward the individual's material, intellectual, moral, and spiritual emergence. And that's right. 
Others, those who comprise society, are the secondary beneficiaries of individual growth. If we would help others, let us first help ourselves by those means which qualify as righteous. Now, Gary Gallus says, Leonard Reed saw that coercive utopian reforms by their nature, substituting external dictation for individual choices, which are the only way for individuals to mature or bloom, had to be both unsuccessful and unjust. And he says, in contrast, voluntary means that violate no one's rights are the only reliable path to individual growth and social advance. He knew that the bloom of liberty pre-existed in the seat of self-ownership and the wilting of collectivism pre-existed in its violations of self-ownership. And Gary Gallus says, that's a lesson few have ever learned as well as Reed and which we are in desperate need of relearning today. Again, welcome back to The Brian Hyde Show. Thank you so much for joining us on the Loving Liberty Radio Network as well as the other platforms that are carrying this program. I hope that uh, you find this message one that is encouraging, somewhat enlightening, and does not leave you feeling a sense of despair or, you know, anguish that, uh, you know, all is, is lost. I don't think it is, but I do believe we're going through some pretty tough times right now, and it looks like we still have some pretty rough road ahead of us. I guess if there were anything that I would ask you to consider at this point, it's that you are up to the task, and with God's help, we can do this. But I really think that that's going to be the key. It's not going to be a politician who's going to step forward. It's not going to be a man on horseback riding up to save us. Uh, We're going to have to uh, do as the founding generation did and lean on the tender mercies of divine providence if we are going to find a way through and out of this mess. Saw a great article from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is by Edward Peter Stringham. And the title is just simply, again, what were the benefits of locking down? I think it's a fair question, particularly since there is a lot of rumbling going on right now about the need to further lock things down. I mean, for crying out loud, have you heard? There's been this tremendous spike in cases of COVID-19. And yet the the press is curiously quiet on, but uh, what about the deaths? I mean, there for a while, they were really focusing on the deaths. Don't hear so much about that now. We just hear about the cases, which if increased testing is going on, then I would expect there to be increased cases. We all understood, right? Flattening the curve was not to eradicate the virus or to stop it in its tracks, but simply to push out the infection rate further along so as not to overwhelm medical facilities. Well, apparently that seemed to work because there were a lot of medical facilities and a lot of medical personnel who were pretty much idled with the exception of some real hot spots like New York City and some places in Florida, etc. But uh, for the most part, it just didn't materialize as uh, the, the models that some experts were going by had predicted it might. Nonetheless, things were shut down, livelihoods interrupted, lives disrupted as well. Was it worth it? What were the benefits? In this case, Edward Peter Stringham says the school closures, stay-at-home orders, shuttering of businesses, banning of elective surgeries, closure of physical entertainment events, blocked flights, and sudden imposition of a central plan 
It all happened suddenly from mid-March in the course of only a few days and to enormous shock on the part of people who had previously taken their freedom and rights for granted. I love that he points out here, despite enormous pressure from Washington, eight states did not lock down or used a very light touch. South Dakota, North Dakota, South Carolina, Wyoming, Utah, Arkansas, Iowa, and Nebraska. He says, after 100 days, we're in a position for some preliminary analysis of the performance of locked down states versus those that did not lock down. Now, the American Institute for Economic Research has already published the evidence that lockdown states had higher rates of unemployment. The Sentinel, a nonprofit news source of the Kansas Policy Institute, confirms their research by reporting the following data. Locked down states have overall a 13.2% unemployment rate, while open states have a 7.8% unemployment rate. But he says perhaps this better economic performance came at the expense of health. Well, in terms of health, those lockdown states have nearly four times the death rate from COVID-19. Now, the results don't prove that staying open necessarily caused the good outcomes. But he says they should certainly lead us to question the notion that the lockdowns are necessary or else we're all going to die. And to be sure, many mitigating factors may exist. Open states may have had fewer long-term health facilities housing people with low life expectancies. In every state, these account for roughly half of all deaths from COVID-19. In fact, deaths among a narrow 1.7% group of the population are greater than deaths from the other 98.3%. Edward Peter Stringham says population density between the states also varies, and that could have been an explanatory variable. The open states also lacked governors who mandated that nursing homes accept active COVID patients. Earlier this month, they published more detailed research on employment far worse in lockdown states, according to data by economist Abigail Devereaux, who found similar results. Stringham says a routine trope in the media is that people who oppose lockdowns are pushing freedom and wealth over safety and health. But as we can see from this clean examination of the results, and by the way, he does have a lot of charts that go along with this. So you can find them in the article, which is in the show notes found at LovingLiberty.net. He says these open states experienced less economic pain and less pain from the disease itself. Edward Peter Stringham says we're seeing desperate attempts by politicians, public health officials, and media commentators somehow to make sense of why the United States pursued the course it did with the closures, stay-at-home orders, travel bans, and near-universal quarantine in violation of every principle that America has celebrated in its civic culture. With the evidence coming in that the lockdowns were neither economically nor medically effective, it's going to be increasingly difficult for lockdown partisans to marshal the evidence to convince the public that isolating people, destroying businesses, and destroying social institutions was worth it. By the way, he's got a number of great articles linked within his own article. Strongly recommend follow those links. Check it out for yourself. It's, it's you know, with, with the 4th of July coming up, all right, we're going to be celebrating Independence Day this coming weekend. And I wonder if this is going to be an Independence Day where, for, for the first time in a long time, people actually start to ponder, what have we been celebrating or what did we think we were celebrating in years past? 
And I say this having been as guilty as anyone of, you know, pretty much celebrating the fact that, well, this means I get to shoot off fireworks and I'm going to throw something on the grill and I'm going to take a day off work and hang out with my friends and it's going to be fun and we're going to all get sunburned. But I didn't have a lot of focus on what really was being celebrated. And maybe because we've lost something this year, maybe because we have a sense that uh, some of those things that we ostensibly were celebrating are hanging in the balance instead, my hope is that people will take it just a little bit more seriously. Now, what do I mean by take it more seriously? A moment of silence before we pop off the fireworks, throw something on the grill, hang out with our friends and get sunburned? Mm, I'm uh, I'm thinking something actually a little bit deeper than that. And forgive me if I'm leading you into uncomfortable territory, but, you know, if, if you have read the Declaration of Independence, and if you haven't, it's, it's not a big, it's not as difficult to read as the Constitution, and the Constitution really isn't that difficult to read either, but the Declaration simply outlines the reasons why the colonists were going to separate themselves from the king and take on self-governance. They were going to govern themselves because the system under which they were living had become abusive and was no longer responding to their needs and was no longer acting as a legitimate government should, protecting the lives, liberty, and property of those who live under it. And rather than just throw caution to the wind and say, that's it, man, (laughs) we're going to create a chaz or we're going to create a chop of our own. (laughs) They laid out the basic principles under which a a people endure abuses for as long as they can, but eventually come to the realization that we had better alter or eliminate the government that is abusing us and secure one that will respond to us, something that will actually make our happiness possible. And the cool thing about it is in the Declaration of Independence, you actually have several different places where they mention divinity. Now, it was not a religious document, nor was it intended to be the foundational starting point for theocracy. My point is only this. When they undertook to separate themselves from their mother country of Great Britain, the colonies were not operating on pure, unbridled rage They weren't just rioting in the streets, tearing down everything that reminded them of King George and, you know, doing it for the sake of, you know, we're going to we're going to change everything. These are words you can't say anymore. These are these are things that are oppressive to us. They humbled themselves. They had national days of fasting and prayer and there within the declaration itself, they refer to. The, the inalienable rights by which we are endowed with, uh, which we are endowed with by our creator. They talk about appealing to the supreme judge of the universe. They talk about divine providence, sacred honor. Now you may say, well, they were prone to using flowery words, Brian. That's just how they talked in those days. If you think that's the case, can I suggest this year for Independence Day, just bust out the declaration and read it again. And read it in light of you are now standing at a moment in time where you are part of a people who are losing some of their precious inalienable rights at every single turn. Maybe they should matter just a little bit more to us this year. Maybe we should put a little more thought into what we thought we were celebrating all these years when the 4th of July rolls around.
And just like that, we are back. Welcome to the Brian Hyde Show. We'll be opening up the phone lines in the next hour just in case there's something you'd like to get off your chest. I'll let you uh, join the conversation at that point in time. I want to talk a little bit about masks and in particular some of the mandatory mask edicts that are coming down. I don't want to say laws because I don't think any of these have been enacted by legislatures but they have been imposed by governors in the form of executive orders or health officials and well let's just say that uh, one of the flashpoints that we're starting to see right now is uh, who's wearing a mask and who isn't. It was kind of nice there for a few weeks when I would go out to to the grocery store I would see people shopping and see, you know, maybe maybe 75% or even, you know, half the people on a bad day, you know, were 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 mask free. But nowadays, I don't know. It's it's like the the fear has been turned up, dialed up to 11 and what I what I thought was was fear and mistrust before and those eyes peering out over those masks when they encounter someone like me without a mask. I'm starting to see real disapproval. No one has said anything to me yet. It's probably because I have such a kind and innocent face and, you know, they wouldn't want to hurt my feelings or something. But uh, I've seen plenty of videos emerge of people who uh, are, are being confronted. And I mean, like, angrily confronted. And there are various businesses that are saying, don't come in here without a mask. I, I actually really appreciate uh, the, the Macy's store that I often shop at. When I go in for groceries, they have a big sign out front that said, please consider wearing a mask. And I got to tell you, that uh, that is far more persuasive to me than you must wear a mask or you are, a, are forbidden from entering the store. I like the uh, the possibility of making those choices for myself. And, and for what it's worth, you know, if this makes me a bad person, I guess I'm a bad person. I don't feel the need to wear a mask everywhere in public at this point. If I did, I would do so, but it would be my choice. I don't want to be coerced, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in this. Now, it's, it's sad to me that there are people like me who don't want to wear the mask who get a little bit belligerent and, and will actually go out and, and confront people who are wearing the masks. I don't think that's a good idea either. There's a lot of pent-up frustration. I think this is just one of those outlets people are looking for to you know, take it out on one another. But in the back of my mind... I have to question whether these mandatory masks really are about safety or if they're about something else. Molly McCann has an excellent article in thefederalist.com. She says that uh, these mandatory masks aren't about safety. They're about social control. In fact, she says to those looking to benefit politically from emergencies, COVID presents an opportunity to advance plans targeted to transform American freedom and the American way of life. Molly McCann says on May 26th, Virginia's governor, Ralph Northam, announced that wearing masks outside one's home would be mandatory effective May 29th. He first hinted that he might issue a masking order uh, over a, a week ago, likely to test the water. This article was published back at the end of May. She says a new refrain in public discourse is growing in volume by the day. Things will never be the same. I don't know if you feel that when you're out shopping, but that's certainly... The vibe I'm picking up on as well. Molly McCann says the certainty with which we're assured of this predetermined future is perplexing. Whether or not things will ever be the same is not at all clear. But some people hope things will never be the same. And she says that much is certain. To those looking to benefit politically from emergencies, COVID presents rather an opportunity to advance plans targeted to transform American freedom and the American way of life. 
Mandatory masking policies provide a valuable foundation to weaponize the virus against American liberty now and in the future. I don't disagree with her assessment there. She points out how demanding freedoms helps to ensure them. Molly McCann says much of our freedom is maintained by the collective resistance of the American mood. When the Minnesota governor excluded churches from his phase one reopening plan, Catholic and Lutheran leadership announced through council that their churches would reopen with or without the state's blessing. And she says the governor's resulting about face was probably not due to a legal epiphany. Rather, he understood he'd pushed the envelope too far. Minnesotans wouldn't put up with any further abuse of their religious freedoms. Would Virginians outside of the blue D.C. suburbs be willing to accept a masking order to take our freedom from us? She says people with anti-American agendas have to mobilize some initial quorum of consent within the population. She says masking is meant to build an opinion cascade. Mandatory masking seeks to build that consent. In addition to extending the fiction that we are in an emergency sufficient to trigger the extra constitutional authority of local and state executives, mandatory masking acts as a peer pressure fueled signal that encourages conformity to our coming, quote, new normal. An April 18th article in the Washington Post underscores the strategy, presenting the mask controversy as a left versus right debate. People resisting mandatory mask policies are, per usual, painted as unreasonable, headstrong, and backward, displaying ignorant American bravado while rejecting science and good sense. Sound familiar? That caricature is itself a tool to mock, marginalize, and to silence dissent. I think my friend Connor Boyack put it, uh, basically, if, you, if you're considered a mask denier, that puts you in the same category as a flat earther. Molly McCann says the most telling, uh, telling passage of the article is this one, quote, For Trump supporters, declining to wear a mask is a visible way to demonstrate that I'm a Republican, or I want businesses to start up again, or I support the president, said Robert Kahn, a uh, law professor at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, who has studied Americans' attitudes toward masks. Masks will quickly become the new normal in blue states, but if social distancing continues through 2022... The mentality among Republicans could well change, too. If I can go to work and the cost of marginal improvement in my life is wearing a mask, maybe Americans of both parties do accommodate ourselves to it. End quote. And Molly McCann says that that's the key. If we want to marginally improve our lives, we will submit. See, the masks, she says, are not the end game. The point of the masks is to teach the American people that if we want to get some sense of normal, we have to accept abnormality. If everyone's wearing a mask, well, that telegraphs a society-wide acceptance that the status quo has changed. And with that consensus, other changes can come too. Society will be primed to accept measures that most normal Americans would reject in any other time. Our new normal will include a permanent expansion of the bureaucracy and alarming new COVID-related regulations. Now, don't forget, masks are of limited benefit. You're not irrational or obdurate if you're skeptical about masks. Molly McCann says the experts have admitted that masks' efficacy is usually negligible. Dr. Anthony Fauci himself, in a 60 Minutes interview early in this pandemic, dismissed masks as essentially useless. There's no reason to be walking around wearing a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel better. 
and might even block a droplet, he said, with an almost eye roll, but it's not providing the perfect protection people think it is, and often there are unintended consequences. End quote. So Fauci may have changed his tune, but plenty of sensible doctors are still speaking up. Last week, a doctor in the Wall Street Journal pointed out that cloth masks, the type worn by the overwhelming majority of the population, are not very effective. Echoing Fauci's earlier admission, the Wall Street Journal author notes that even the N95 masks fall short. They're continued effective. They're considered rather effective at blocking coronavirus particles only when they're form fitted and tested to make sure there isn't any leakage. In short, cloth masks are largely symbolic. The science hasn't changed, but the agenda has. Implementing mandatory mask policies across a society of 300 million people because it makes some people feel better is absurd on its face. But the policy makes a lot of sense if you understand its purpose and usefulness to shift the American mindset. Molly McCann says mandatory masks are a critical predicate conditioning us to accept abuses of our liberty. Mandatory masking provides the foundation on which governments continue to justify emergency measures and rule by executive fiat. And it creates a national mood of consent that America will accept indefinite government expansion because we face a new normal. Wow. Pretty powerful stuff. I'll have this included in the show notes, but look, at the risk of sounding like, you know, I'm wearing my tinfoil hat, I think she's right. I think this has a lot more to do with fomenting some kind of group consensus or some kind of uh, uh, basically group manipulation than it does with actually protecting people's health. If you've ever heard of uh, Beverly Eekman, she has written a book on uh, group manipulation techniques. It's something, something the old Marxist would have called collective spirit. But it's an actual science, and there are people who are very good at it, and you've probably experienced it. If you have ever been to a PTA meeting or uh, any other kind of public meeting, or you've had to sit through mandatory sensitivity training at work. The idea is the facilitator, who comes in with a pre-selected ideology, figures out who isn't on board and then uses peer pressure to get that person to submit his or her will to the collective. Does any of this sound familiar? <laughs> 